Well, hello, everybody. This is Rafael Garcia, and it is July 27th, Thursday, July 27th, and we are back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I am back again with my partner in crime, Schwan Humes. How are you doing there, sir? I'm doing good as always, ready to talk about this sport that we love so much and so often. Yeah, man, we definitely got a hell of a lot to talk about this week, especially with some entertaining stuff. I, as always, know we have a big fight this weekend, which seems to be the case for much of July. We have UFC 214 coming down the pipe in just a few days. Um, you know, it's funny because I've been talking to some people about it, and they have been not wanting to talk about the card, trying not to, to jinx it. It was around this time, last time, that um, John Jones was forced out of UFC 200, and people are like, man, we can't afford to have that happen again. So here I am knocking on wood, hoping that UFC 214 goes down this Saturday without a, without a hitch, no injuries, no foolishness, no weigh-ins, uh, shenanigans, nothing of the like. So uh, we are definitely looking forward to talking about that show. Most of our news from this week is also involving UFC 214, but we got a couple other news bits to talk about. We're going to look back to UFC on Fox 25, maybe talk a little bit about that fight um, and that event. I want us to talk about the big matchup. I think probably the most important fight that was announced for this week, um, where we have Jessica Andrade and Claudelia Gadelia, uh, excuse me, Claudia Gadelia, scheduled to fight in Japan later on this year, and also talk about some of the other things that are going on. So um, we're going to go ahead and jump right in there. Uh, Shawan, you ready to get things going? Yeah, I'm ready to go, sir. All right. So first things first, I want to talk about is my boy John Jones. Um, a couple of pieces that uh, a couple of news stories. First and foremost, we're going to talk about before we go straight to Cormier versus Jones on Saturday. The first thing I want to look at are his comments about our favorite promoter, um, Dana White. And it's been pretty clear that Jones and White have had a testy relationship at most. And, you know, when, when you hear me say testy, I'm using the the uh, proverbial air quotes sign with my uh, fingers and everything. And this week, there was an article in uh, LA Times where Jones was being interviewed, and he spoke about Dana White, and he spoke, he was very candid. And I'm going to read um, his quote very quickly just to kind of make sure everyone's on the same page, kind of level set for this conversation. And this is Jones in the LA Times interview where he says, I quote, I feel like he's shown me his true colors, he being Dana White. And now I have no desire to pretend like he cares about me or that we're friends. Um, and then he also goes on to say, Dana, Dana White has reached out to me on at least four occasions, and I haven't answered any of his calls or any of his text messages. That's the reason why we haven't spoken. I just feel like when you're making money, when you're making the company money and you're a pay-per-view draw and you're ultimately putting money in his pocket, then you mean a lot to White. The moment you aren't, you aren't those things, you mean nothing to him. And he's done a decent job showing that. I felt completely abandoned by him in a situation when I needed him the most. Now, he's talking, Jones was talking about specifically about the failed drug test before uh, USC 200, where Dana White basically didn't pull any punches and went in on John Jones, um, culminating with him making the statement that he'll never let John Jones headline another event. But this actually goes back 
further than that, if you can think of UFC 151, I believe that was the event in 2013 or 2012, 2012, that was canceled when Dan Henderson was hurt at the last minute and uh, Chell Sonnen tried to um, jump in and the whole famous um, Greg, Jans- Greg-, Greg Jackson is a sports killer, uh, a sport killer comment that Dana White went on. So talk to me about this, Sean. What are some of your thoughts on Jones's statement here? And do you agree, disagree? Are you, uh, what, are you, what, are your, what are your initial thoughts on what he said earlier this week? Well, um, I, I, kinda, I understand why he feels a certain kind of way. I understand that he feels hurt. I understand he feels taken advantage of. I understand he feels like he's a product, and when he has value, the UFC backs him and supports him. When he didn't have value or he was looking like he wouldn't compete, the UFC had nothing for him, or at least Dana White didn't. But it's it's really hard for me to have any sympathy for him because that's kind of the that's kind of the guidelines everybody works by, if you know what I'm saying. Like, John Jones left his old camp. Why? Because he thought that Greg Jackson's camp could get him to the next level and help him evolve and refine and develop the skills necessary to compete with the best in the world. He's not with the UFC because he just loves the UFC. He's with the UFC because they provide him the best money. They give him the biggest platform. They're having him face the best opposition that allows him to build his brand and build his name as the greatest of all time. So it's like he he picks people as far as trainers, places to train, the place he fights at. He, he p- picks them based on what they can do for him. And now he seems upset when Dana White is frustrated or doesn't show his full support when John Jones is no longer able to do things for him or is threatening the well-being of his company. Or if you just want to say Dana White's pockets, Dana White's pockets. So it's kind of weird to me because he's, he's getting mad at Dana White for doing the same thing literally everybody everybody in the world does. Nobody works their job if their job does not pay them and provide them a, a salary they can live with. You don't love the job. You're there because it allows you to certain benefits and certain freedoms and if they stop paying you or they stop treating you a certain way would you stay there no would john jones stay with the ufc if they're like hey we can't pay you for your next three fights but we'll get you on the fourth one no he's not fighting so while i understand what he's saying he does that and everybody else does it his his trainers do that if a guy is not a good enough fighter they're not going to continue to train him if he can't pay them or he can't get enough where he can get paid for fights they're not going to continue to focus and train on that that's how that works so it's like I understand why he's hurt, but as an adult, it seems kind of a weird reaction for him. That's um, man, that's some actually some interesting analysis there, and uh, I definitely respect where you're coming from on that angle. But I certainly don't agree fully. Um, I do believe Dana White has made it clear how he feels about fighters, um, how he feels about some fighters. I'm not going to say all of them because if you look at, for example, the way he treated. Um, Jesus, um, Matt Hughes and and Chuck Liddell, giving them jobs after they retired within the UFC. Those are examples of where he's treated men um, in the sport above and beyond uh, the way, you know, above and, uh, above and beyond you would expect. Um, then you look at, for example, the way he's treated Chris Cyborg. Now he's come around to on to the Chris Cyborg, I don't want to say bandwagon, but he's joined her fan club because he sees what type of money she can bring in for the organization. He sees that she's a bigger draw than maybe they originally anticipated. Look at how he talked about her when he said that she's Wanderlei Silva in a dress. Look about look at how he talked about her when it came out when she failed that um, USADA, uh, she had that pot- potential USADA um, violation. Look at, look at the way he responded and it's 
pretty clear that he had written her off at both of those points in time. Now to see that she's a, a big draw, it's like, okay, you see all his statement maybe last month where he's saying that he's going to um, he's going to do right by her, basically. And when you look at Jones, it's very similar to the same thing. Like Again, I always point back to UFC 151 or what if 152, whatever that event number was. And the way that the whole thing was thrown on um, Jones and his camp, blaming them for the cancellation of the show. The UFC did not pay those fighters um, anything. They didn't pay them their fight or their show money or anything like that. Um, all these fighters going through an extremely long camps, going through their camps with the intention of fighting that day. And the minute that the card was canceled, the blame was thrown at Jones. Jones, Jones didn't make the call to uh, cancel the show. The UFC did. They made the call. They also were already budgeted to pay all of those fighters at least half of their money, and they didn't do that because they made the choice, not not John Jones. John Jones's job is to do the best by John Jones, period. The same way Dana White's job is to do the best by the UFC, period. So I can understand, and I agree with what Jones is saying here. When you are not a viable moneymaker for the UFC, they, um, Dana White makes it clear. And this isn't the first example. It won't be the last. Um, and I, I, I find it, this is the thing about professional sports. Owners and presidents make it very clear that they are here to win and they are here to, here to make money. Nobody got mad at Dan Gilbert for when he said what he said about LeBron James when the, the LeBron James left the Cleveland Cavaliers the first one. No one, no one got mad at Dan Gilbert. Everyone got mad at LeBron James, even though what Dan Gilbert said was borderline offensive and it hinges on the idea of ownership of a human being. When Jones comes back and they win, oh, excuse me, when James comes back and they win the championship, Dan Gilbert is his biggest fan. So you clearly see the, the difference there and the same comparison equates to what John Jones is saying about Dana White, in my opinion. See, I, I get that, but in all these examples, for example, the Chris Cyborg example, first of all, if you, if you feel someone doesn't have your back or support you, it's like purposely dating someone who you know is abusive or knows is a cheater. Why would you subject yourself to that? And then cry about it afterwards and secondly if we're talking about loyalty scott coker took very good care of cyborg he's the one who made her a name and put her up against unlike unlike dana white scott coker put cyborg in against the face of his organization she had a huge fight she had a huge following he was paying her money he loved her he never spoke bad of her even when she had her drug suspension he never took shots at her all he did was cover for her respect her get her paid and get her and find her fights Minor fights against the best opposition, but she didn't go to Coker because she felt the UFC was a bigger platform and paid her better money. Coker had been loyal to her. Coker still can't say a bad word about about um, Cyborg, but here she is going to another organization that has not shown her one tenth loyalty. But 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 let's let's back up a second though because when she went to Invicta first, and while Invicta was still its own organization, then they were picked up by the UFC, which made which de facto made her an employee of the UFC and then the UFC brought her into the octagon. So she didn't make the choice to go to the UFC. She went there because out of the de facto relationship between them and, and Invicta. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get it. And, and for me personally, I wouldn't have gone to the UFC. I, maybe she didn't have a choice, but my whole thing was like, she she never asked for a release from the UFC. She never said it before. She started seeing that once they started treating her badly, then she wanted a release. It's kind of the same thing with the whole MMA thing as a, as a, as a group. 
y'all never they never have a union because nobody ever cares about how anybody else is getting treated. It's never a problem until you're the victim, and it's the same way with all sports. Nobody cares about it until they see that it might affect them. Oh, my contract's coming up. Let me see how they handle this wide receiver. Oh, my contract's coming up. I'm at the end of my career. Let's see how they handle this linebacker. Uh, well, I say, well, I don't think it's respectful for anybody to do that. It's what everybody does. LeBron left Cleveland because he wanted to win a championship. He wanted a team that could get him parts around him. You know, he could have just stayed with Cleveland and said, you know what, I'm loyal to Cleveland. I don't care if I win a championship. I'm either going to win it here or I'm not going to win anywhere. And I'm not saying that's smart. I'm not saying they shouldn't move. I'm not saying you shouldn't draw a line in the sand. But the same standards you're holding them to, if the roles were reversed and the UFC was under all this scrutiny, it was about to get shut down, would John Jones say, I'm riding with Dana to the end. I'm not going to another organization. I'm going to stay until the UFC closes the shop and then I'll move. No, he's got a family to take care of. He's got bills to pay. His team's got bills to pay. He is going to move to a better option. If there was a better option right now, he'd be considering it. It's not like it's just one way where Dana just takes advantage of me because I'm not a Dana fan. I think he's a flip-flopper when it comes to fighters. I think he's a bandwagon jumper. But the fact of the matter, these fighters don't like him either. I don't know why they pretend they do. They don't like him. John Jones has never liked Dana White. He doesn't like a lot of people. And you're seeing that more and more. He just doesn't like the way he's been treated. Lots of guys have been treated badly by the UFC. Where was all this talk then? He didn't know that they thought of them as products and people they own. When he saw how they treated AKA, when he's heard the history of how they treated lower-level fighters, he's just realizing this now. Well, why is he realizing it? Because it's happening to him. Yeah, it happened to all sorts of people, and he just didn't care. And, that, and that's a big part of it because I think that even if, again, I'll use the UFC 151 example where all the fighters turned around. Like the fighters turned on John Jones for protecting his best interests when instead their anger should have been at the UFC for not at least compensating them for half of their show money or their show money, which was already budgeted for the event. So, yeah, you're right. Um and this is still this is still kind of the the fledgling aspect of MMA that is going to take a while to go away. That fighters have right now, fighters are charged to look out for their best interests first, and they do that by not taking a, a stand together. Um, so, yeah, I understand and I agree with you that Jones is making these statements now because the the conversations and the attacks are I don't want to say personal, but they're directed towards him. Um, I don't think that that's something that's going to change. I think it's going. You're, I think you're going to begin seeing more of it, um, and which is funny because this is you know Dana White has Dana White has fallen more silent as of lately. He hasn't been as outspoken in a lot of different situations. But um, well, just, just think, one more thing. I, and once again, I don't I don't hate Jones. I don't hate Dana White. I have issues with both of them. But but Jones acts like. He was just the total victim. He does know that he committed crimes and failed tests that have repeatedly cost them money and put them in a bad light. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I mean, Chuck Liddell had one incident, I think, where he might have been drunk on a radio show, but he, he didn't cancel fights. Matt Hughes took fights. He knew he couldn't win because the UFC needed him to take those fights. And, and, he, and he always put himself on the line. They didn't have any legal issues. They didn't hit anybody with a car and then run off. And I know Jones owned it. I know he's he's turning over a new leaf or whatever. But the fact of the matter is he still did those things. As the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world, he put his record, his state, his place in the world, and the UFC's fights in jeopardy. And so it's like, Dana's just that kind of guy, but we've always known that about him. Dana always says, I'm not friends with these guys. He says that repeatedly. But you did things that, that 
actually impacted other people. When he's not on the car, the car sold less. Or when the fight goes to OSP instead of whoever or whatever happens, that impacts other fighters because the name fighters, the best fighters, are the guys who dictate the pay for the rest for the rest of the group. On a bigger card, you get more money, you get more exposure, you get more sponsorship. There's other things that happen outside of you just getting paid. You have a great fight on a small small UFC on FS1 card that gets you some attention. You have it on a John Jones, a Conor McGregor, any card that's big that draws attention, like fights like this. That gets you more fans. That gets you more opportunities inside and outside the cage. So it does impact other people. And the stuff that happened with them was stuff that could have been avoided. Hitting a pregnant lady in the car and running away, that could have been avoided. Failing a drug test could have been avoided. You know, so as much as he's a victim of it, and I get that, he did actual things that impacted it. And, all, and the way he was living before, at any moment, could have cost him canceled fights before. If any of that stuff would have come out before. I mean, where would his legacy be now if he'd been, been caught four years ago doing some of this stuff or if it would have come out yeah some, i mean i'm some I'm, victim i'm not um disagreeing with you there on, on that point because he isn't he isn't pristine in these situations dana white has a reason to have a lack of trust in him there's a reason why jimmy Manor was on this card there's a clear as day reason why he is and why he is tapped basically as the backup for the situation if um, something was to go down. So this isn't, he's not uh, a martyr in this situation at all. Um, I just, I, I enjoy hearing professional athletes taking a stand for themselves and demanding what they feel like is their right or pushing back against um, ownership in a way that lets them know that, hey, we understand that this is a business, but the business, but your business interests aren't always aligned with my business interests. And uh, I think that this is another example, and I, and I like what I'm hearing from Jones, um, and I just hope that he continues to stay the straight and narrow and continues to practice what he's, he's preaching. And we'll see if other fighters begin to enact the same way if they also have these struggles with the UFC. Well, I hope, I, I, you know what, to co-sign that, I hope that when other fighters are having their struggles, he's, he's, he speaks up too. Because remember, Jose Aldo talked a lot until he signed his new contract. Then That's he had nothing to say. That is, and that is a big, that is a big um, part there because these guys do speak up for themselves, but they are slow to speak up for each other, which I think is, which I think is, is changing as of late. Um it is slowly beginning to, to, to change, but I, st I still think that, for example, you know, when um, USADA cleared Cyborg, you didn't see a lot of fighters coming to her aid. In fact, you have some fighters like uh, Jermaine, De uh, Jermaine Deronomy basically still calling her a steroid uh, user. So I would want to see them stand up for each other a little bit more quickly when the situation is on the other foot. So I can definitely agree with you on that one. Let's stay with John Jones and talk about the other bit of big news that he was involved in this week when his name was thrown out there as a potential opponent for Brock Lesnar. Now, I want to take a step back before we dive directly into this, but this story, the rumor kind of started earlier this week when, and a couple of different things. One, there was a rumor about Brock Lesnar re-entering the USADA um, testing uh, cycle which would put him on pace for a fight in December. And many people began to begin to think, well, maybe the UFC is trying to put him on 
their big in the year card. Now, I wonder how that would play out with the fact that he failed a drug test last year, if they would be able to kind of circumvent that and, and would he, would he still get suspended? That's another question I didn't even think of until just now. But that story started boiling and started snowballing until um, there was uh, another conversation point. Dave Meltzer, who works, who covers professional wrestling, but also covers um, mixed martial arts, went on record and said that John Jones is the name that's being bantered around as a potential, potential um, opponent for Lesnar, uh, especially if he comes out on top this weekend. And that is a fight right there that could be that's that's the type of fight that can headline an event without with or without conor mcgregor like with with or without ronda rousey with or without whoever else is on the roster that's the main event right there that causes people to stop and want to see and there's so many different areas to this i want to talk about but what was your first um inclination when you saw the idea of john jones being paired against brock lesnar well i was on twitter and, and a lot of people i i heard about it through twitter a lot of people were kind of bashing it, the idea, because they're saying, uh, you know, that's not what the sport's about. Brock's not active. Jones is just now going to be active. Why are they talking about the circus show element instead of the actual real competitive fights? But I have to remind people, and this is, I always think about the business aspect of it. I see all aspects, but in this case, I talk about the business aspect. The way all these big sports keep the lights on is when they develop stars or they have huge matchups. Because because the matchup it becomes like a star event, or it has huge stars and it becomes an event. That's how you keep the lights on. You don't keep the lights on with the journeyman and the the top fifteen ranked guys. Or it, you know, it's it's the name guys. It's the very best guys. It's events like these that keep the lights on and allow for opportunities for other fighters to get out there. So while a lot of fans and media bash this kind of event, I'm on the bandwagon because it's the kind of thing that generates the money that's going to get people raises, that's going to get people on other cards, that's going to get people more exposure. Somebody's going to tune in to see Brock and Jones. If it's such a circus sideshow and nobody respects that card, then why is every single fighter going to be trying to get on it? Every fighter's going to be talking to their manager trying to get on that card because that's going to be a chance for them to put on a show for the fans, to expand their fan base, to strengthen their brand. And to me, I never have a problem with these kind of things, whether it's competitive or not. It's an event, just like the Mayweather-McGregor thing's an event. This would be an event for MMA, just like Nate Diaz versus Conor McGregor was an event. It wasn't an important fight. It wasn't a ranking fight. It's a fight for money, and it's a fight that helps the bottom line for the organization, which, which helps the media members, which helps the fighters. Everybody wins from this, but everybody acts like it's the worst thing ever. Oh, this is so disrespectful. So dis it's not disrespectful. You're benefiting. You're on a huge car. You're getting money. If you have a title and you defend it on that car, you're getting a huge payday. If you fight on that card, you're getting a better payday. You're getting more attention. If you're a media member, any article you write about any fight on that card is going to get more clicks because it's such a huge card. But the same people who are going to eat from it are going to complain like, oh, it's such an insult. It's a circus. I don't approve of this. I just have to cover this for my job. You don't have to cover it. Sit down. Don't cover it. Focus on the more important fights and watch your numbers drop and watch your check get smaller. But they're not going to do that. They're going to join in, and while they join in, they're going to insult the process, even though it's what's keeping them paid and keeping their sport moving forward. Remember, you Ultimate Fighting, NHB, was pushed as a sideshow freak show. That's how it got its beginnings. That's how it got its foothold into the consciousness of the country of the world. It, it's something that's always been about it. So why are these people going to downplay it when it's going to essentially pay their bills and help move the sport forward? 
you know, Dick Vitale, when he talks about the uh, March Madness, he always says one statement kind of describes all of about March Madness. Everyone's job in the in, in the tournament, in the NCAA basketball tournament, is to survive in advance. That's all they're trying to do, survive in advance. When it comes to combat sports, the name of the game is to put butts in seats and to make money. You can talk about being a championship. You can talk. You, you can talk about being a champion. You can talk about going down as the greatest fighter of all time. You know that's all well and good, but at the end of the day, the name of the game is prize fighting, and you're trying to build your way to the biggest prize. Brock Lesnar versus John Jones does not impact the heavyweight rankings substantially because if Jones was to go in there and win, of course he would be in line for a, a, a title shot. I don't care who else is doing what in the, the weight class at, at the time, but this is a fight that could be a million-dollar pay-per-view event easily. Like even at the announcement or the inclinations going back and forth, guys talking about it, I sat here and thought to myself like, man, first and foremost, there's the idea that the UFC would have to partner with the, the WWE again because Lesnar is under contract with them through April, which is WrestleMania of next year, and he's already kind of put the idea out there that he doesn't intend on re-signing his his contract. So there's that, which means that if Lesnar was to fight in December, there would need to be some negotiations there. This is one moment where I could see. Could you imagine John Jones appearing on a WWE event? I I can imagine it happening. I could totally wholeheartedly see Jones being down to show up on one of their events to promote a fight against Brock Lesnar with the UFC title over his shoulder, regardless of if Dana White says hell no or not. That would make this the biggest fight in UFC history. Hands down, that moment right there alone by itself. Yeah, too many times the integrity, and I understand there's integrity, I get it. But every sport sells out to a degree to make money. You know, I mean, think about the NFL when the Cowboys weren't very good. Why were the Cowboys getting primetime games? Because they have a huge fan base. And I don't care if the Cowboys are 1-4 or 4-1. People are going to tune in to see them lose because they hate them or tune in to see them win because they love them. Or they had more primetime slots than teams that, that had winning records for a period of time because they sell more. Same thing with LeBron James. The Cleveland Cavaliers weren't the best team when he was there the first time, but it had LeBron James, which comes with instant ratings, instant sponsorships, instant fans filling up the whole arena. This is no different, and and it would be huge. And the in too long the UFC, the UFC and MMA, MMA as a whole has understood this. The UFC has tried to balance this line where we're going to go from being integrity, integrity, you know, and, and moral. And then we're going to go enter entertainment and we're going to try and justify it, justify it as being full of moral character. That's that's not the case. You can have a combination of both because the UFC is just like the WWE. It's sports entertainment, except it's it's not unscripted. It's athletic people who are trying to put on entertaining shows and set up storylines so that people will watch them fight. A fight is exciting in and of itself. It becomes more exciting with a storyline and with some outside attention. And they should just dive all the way in and do what it takes to get the numbers they need to get. And a fight like this allows that to happen. I don't care if Brock isn't really the best heavyweight. Even right now, Brock would still be a top 10 heavyweight. I can name five guys he could be right now in the heavyweight division. Rank guys. Yeah. He, he could beat Andre Arvalowski. I think at this stage, he might be able to beat Junior DeSantos. 
He could beat um, Travis Brown. He could beat Olenek, the guy who beat Travis Brown. He could beat a lot of guys who are in heavyweights right now. Justin <laughs> Willis, he can beat him. I could, there's like five. I just named right there. He, he there's a lot just of guys right he could beat. So he's still a ranked quality heavyweight. I'd be interested to see what happens if Jones fights a guy who he can't physically manhandle, a guy who can just by pure strength and athleticism out wrestle him. That's an interesting matchup just based off the physicality of it. So there's some legitimacy legitimacy to it. But the whole circus aspect is what's going to sell, and you might as well embrace it because the UFC has bills they need to pay. They need a new TV program, and that's not going to happen with so-so ratings and so-so buys. They need to do what it takes to keep the business moving forward. And all those people who hate on it for the integrity of the sport, they're not paying the UFC bills. They make money off the UFC. See, they make money off them. These fighters don't pay the UFC. They make money off them. These camps don't pay the UFC. They make money off them. So whatever the UFC needs to do to make money and keep the organization and the divisions going, they need to just sign on with it. If they don't want to sign on with it, ask for your release and go to Bellator. Because this is what it takes to keep the lights on and keep these checks coming in. So you have to decide. Do you want the checks coming in or do you want to make your moral stand? You can't do both. And, and I'm not going to listen to somebody who takes a moral stand but then still takes the check. You defeated your moral stand because you still took the check. Make a stand. Don't fight. Don't take the money. Don't be a part of it. But you can't you can't ride the fence on this and expect me to have some respect for you on it. I, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there at all. And it's crazy, man, because I could imagine that this would be a huge event, a massive monumental event. And I'm not I don't even care to really break it down from an analysis standpoint. I think Jones would would win. Um, but I think I love to think about this sport from the business standpoint, and I think that this, from a business standpoint, would be a massive payday for everybody involved, from the top of the card to the bottom. This is this is the type of card where you get on it and you show out in every way, shape, or form. Like you show out every time a camera is in front of your face, every time a microphone is in front of your face, and when you get into the cage, whether if you're the opening fight or the co-main event or the main event, you go out there and you show out. This has been the thing we, we've always talked about on the show, and people who've listened to the show for a while have known we've always talked about this. These fighters, these camps, these managers, they are lazy. And, and I know fighters. Lazy. Yeah, you work hard in the gym, but you're jealous of all the big-name people, and you're like, because the UFC pushes them. The UFC gives them all these opportunities. They go out and search for their own opportunities. If the UFC ain't pushing them, they're going to push themselves. Conor McGregor will push himself. Ronda Rousey pushed herself. Uriah Faber pushed himself. Manny Nunes, I don't know why they don't push me. You're the first openly gay and lesbian champion. Why aren't you pushing yourself? Why aren't you calling our? Why aren't you having your people call these magazines? Why aren't you having your people try to set stuff up for you? Why are you waiting for them to do it? If you know that they care about their bottom line and that's the only thing they care about, why are you not caring about your bottom line and making things happen and forcing them to have to pay you because you're getting a bigger foothold in the conscious of society or sports society? Why are you not doing that? How are you not doing that? I don't care if the UFC cuts you off. Then you have something else to argue about. You have another story to sell. You have another way to keep your name in the lights without being attached to Ronda or Misha or whoever else. Like, y'all need to start think, stop, stop thinking about what these other people are doing and start thinking about how you can maximize your own brand. And nobody wants to do that. They just, I just want to fight. I don't want to call anybody out. I don't want to say anybody's name. I'm a real martial artist. I'm not a fake and a phony. Well, you're also not getting paid. And you want to get paid. You complained about that. You're a real martial artist. Be humble. Perfect your art, fight, go home. This complaining about where you're placed on the card and the money, that comes without work. That comes with making some sacrifices, and nobody wants to sacrifice. They just want to complain and talk about the integrity, but then it's still expect to get the money that these other people are getting. You can't have it both ways. 
It does not work. You make a decision. You're going to be martial artist guy or you're going to be sports entertainer. They both get you mm-hmm. paid, but one gets you paid a little bit better. Which one do you want to be? Exactly. I'm not I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you at all there. Um, so that is a big moment that a lot of people were kind of like jumping and jumping, nipping at the bit at um, chopping at the bit around. And I just think that I think it'll be a huge moment. You know, we have this weekend's card to think about first. But if Jones finds a way to get the win, I wouldn't be mad at the booking of a fight between he and Brock Lesnar. I wouldn't be mad at it at all. And I hope that they leverage the WWE in a way that allows them to make this the biggest fight to ever occur in the promotion. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be irris- financially, it'd be irresponsible not to make the fight. Yeah, definitely. I could definitely get with you on that. Um, let's look at the next new bit of news. I want to take some time to look back to um, UFC on Fox 25. I don't want to stay on this card too long. Um, and it's funny because this is actually the event that I've received the lowest, um, the third lowest ratings for a UFC on Fox event in all time. Um, it was headlined so yeah. by Chris Weidman. He's not as popular as they try to lie and make you think he is. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there. Um, I don't I don't think he's ever been that major draw, um, but just kind of like UFC on Fox tends to do good numbers. These, I mean, even Demetrius Johnson tends to draw on these um, cars. There's only been one time where he hasn't. So to see well, this. It also helps if you're on a winning streak. That's a winning streak instead of a three fight. Mm-hmm. I got KO three times in a row losing streak. That also plays a fact. It also it all it always does, but you know he brought that to an end with a win over Kelvin Gastelum. He got the stop in round two via arm triangle choke. Talk or excuse me, round three. I thought it was round two, but in round three via arm triangle choke. What did you see here in, in this fight? And is this uh, is this a win that kind of gets you excited about Weidman again? Um, some people were saying how how Gastelum even in loss, even in defeat, kind of increased his stock um, in this card here. So so tell me what you saw for both men. Man, people, ever since, ever since I wrote, I've been writing out, ever since I started this show, because of this show, I got people who like Chris Weidman and like his camp coming for me every single day on Twitter because I'm telling the truth. I do not dislike this guy. He can fight. He's got some skills. But beating up a blown-up welterweight, a super small middleweight, that doesn't impress me. I, I really picked Gastelum to win. But even in beating Gastelum, everybody kept telling me, oh, he looks so great. His his stand-up was so sharp. He was using his length. His defense was there. I'm like, no, I didn't see that. I saw him landing full-on power shots and barely moving Gastelum. He was landing, He landed some hard shots. He didn't have Gastelum on skates. Gastelum wasn't rocked. He wasn't covering up. He had Gastelum trapped against the cage, and he threw like an eight-punch combination and didn't land a one of them. Gastelum, the welterweight, because that's the way he really should be at dropped him. The only person who got dropped and really hurt in the fight with shots on the feet was Chris Weidman. Gastelum hit him and almost finished him in the first round. The whole issue with Chris Weidman is in all his fights, to me, he looked the same in a lot of ways. He looked a little bit sharper, and they said he looked more physical, more domineering, but that's against a smaller guy. The fact of the matter is, the same thing he did against Gastelum is the same thing he attempted to do against Luke Rockhold, same thing he attempted to do to to Yoel Romero, same thing he attempted to do to to Gegard Mousasi. He took them down, tried to control them, worked them over, and finished them on the ground. The difference is, those guys were big and strong enough that they can consistently get back up. Gastelum initially scrambled and got up got up quickly and got up multiple times, but he wasn't going to be able to keep that up against Chris Weidman. Weidman's too big. Weidman's too good on top. Weidman's too good in transition. He's got too too good of a control. 
And he's like, by the time Whiteman gets into the cage, he's like a, a full-on light heavyweight as far as his size. There's no way Gaslam was able, Gaslam just got tired constantly scrambling, constantly gr and staying in those extended grappling exchanges up against the fence and on the ground. Gegard Musasi is as big and as strong as Chris Weidman. He wasn't going to get tired. Weidman had to keep working to get him down. Eventually, Weidman started getting slower. The shots started getting sloppier. His defense on the feet started falling apart. His offense on the feet started falling apart. Against Yo Romero, he kept taking him down. Romero kept getting up. Eventually, he started getting tired. Yo Romero timed him. The shots started getting sloppy. He took a shot, ran right into a knee. Against Luke Rockhold, he was taking him down fighting in these extended exchanges, striking with him. Eventually, he wasn't able to control him the way he wanted to or bully him the way he wanted to. And all of a sudden, he... Hail Mary strike gets taken down and summarily gets beat within an inch of his life. Once again, Chris Weidman looks good against a guy who he was physically stronger than, more durable than, and could manhandle. He looked great against Machida, kind of, sort of, but Machida isn't as big as him, isn't as strong, and wasn't as durable. He looked great at Vitor Belfort. Once again, smaller, less durable, less strong guy. Damian Maya, smaller, less durable, less athletic guy. Against these smaller guys, he looks great. He's manhandling guys, he's bullying them, he's taking them down left and right, but every time he faces guys with, with competent skill sets who can match his physical attributes, he never looks good. He faced Gaslam, who had the power, but Gaslam didn't have the strength, the physical strength, or the all-round grappling acumen to balance out the lack of physical strength. Mostly, it was just the size and the physical strength. He was manhandling Gaslam. He was bigger and stronger. He fought a little bit cleaner. The transitions were better. He was a little bit more disciplined on the feet. But he wasn't really getting touched up by Musasi or Romero or Rockhold. He just got tired because he couldn't do what he wanted against them. Against Gaslam, he could do what he wanted because he was too big and too strong. He took Gagar down just like that. He just couldn't keep him down. He couldn't get him into those positions. He muscled. He used skill, but he muscled Gaslam in certain positions. And that, that was a difference. He looked good, but he's calling out Michael Bisping after beating up a blown-up middleweight. He's saying he's still the champ. I mean, it was, it was a good win because Gaslam was on a winning streak, but who did Gaslam beat? You know, who did he really be that made him such a name in this in this fight? I mean, I, mean, I don't uh, know what it means. Go New ahead. Magni? Did he beat New Magni? Or did he lose that fight? He beat New Mag. No, I think he lost at welterweight. Yeah, he lost. Let me look real quick. Um, let me look real as quick. As far as who I know, Belford and uh, who else? Tim he Kennedy? Lost to Tyron Woodley. Yep. Yeah, Johnny Hendricks. Okay. Yeah, Johnny Hendricks. I mean, he he didn't Rick's beat story. any he he didn't beat any legitimate middleweights anytime recently, and he was losing to top welterweights. So while while his win well, was he beat his, Tim Kennedy. Tim Kennedy was a legit middleweight. I'm not gonna say he, he's not. I'm not gonna say he's not either, but he retired right after, which yeah doesn't doesn't bode well for. I mean Tim Kennedy, but Tim Kennedy wasn't really an elite. To me, he wasn't elite middleweight. He wasn't Yo Romero. He wasn't Whitaker and all them. But I'll give him that win. But Tim he Kennedy, almost beat Yoel. Tim Kennedy hadn't fought in almost a year and a half. Like, that is true, but he almost he, beat Yoel. You can't he, say he, he didn't. Vitor Belford almost beat Chris Weidman and almost had him out in the first round. We know B v Belford ain't nothing. I mean, and he has a win, and he has a win over Michael Bisping too. Yeah, I'm just saying he hadn't beat anybody who you would consider an elite middleweight. This was going to be his first real test at middleweight. And, hey man, he he also beat Hodge Gracie. I'm and kidding. He, I'm, I'm shit. <laughs> and he and he, and it's just like. 
I don't I don't have anything against Weidman, but if you saw that fight and you thought all of a sudden he's ready, he's prepared to face the best in middleweight and beat them, I don't know what to tell you. I don't think he beats Whitaker. I still don't think he beats Romero. Thank God Gegard is no longer in the division. He isn't worried about him. I don't know that he beats Rockhold still. I'm not even sure that he beats Tim Bosch right now. I really don't know because Bosch is big and strong enough. He's not going to be able to take him, da- take him down and control him left and right. He's not going to take him down left and right. That's not going to happen. I'm going mm-hmm. to. So I, it was a good win. Yes. Well, was I glad he got the win? Sure, I'm glad. But did he show me something that says he's back in the title hunt? And anybody who thinks differently, fine. I'm not going to argue with you. I didn't see it. He didn't prove it. He didn't prove anything to me. I said if he could hold Gaslam down and use his size and his grappling skill, he would win. Otherwise, he would just get tired, get beat up on the feet again, and get finished. And he, and essentially, the first round, he took him down. Gaslam got up, got up, got up. The minute they were on the feet, Gaslam hit him with one clean shot and almost put him out. He got rocked by a, a blown-up welterweight. He was not even the hardest hitter in the division. And he had a hard time controlling him, too. It's not like he just finished him in the, right away in the first round. It took him, what, did he go into the fourth round? Or was it just the third? Third Late in the third round. round. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like he just steamrolled him. He didn't. He got hurt in the fight. Gastelum got up many times. Gastelum, against a guy who was bigger, stronger, and longer than him, was even money. It was essentially even money on the feet. So where is this huge impression? I'm supposed. I mean, De- Anderson Silva's win over Derek Brunson was more impressive to me because he's facing a more dangerous guy. You know, so I, I I'm just not. I don't know what to say about this. I don't. I don't think it's a particularly great win. It's great for him, but that's coming off a three fight losing streak all by knockout. But for anybody else, this would not be a big win. It's only a big win considering the circumstances. And if you think about, at one point he was a pound for pound entrant, and he was th- thought of as one of the best middleweights of all time. And now you're going 50-50 with a guy who was a mid-top 10 welterweight? I don't know, man. It's not a good look for me. It's not a good look in my opinion. But that's just me. Yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with you there. Um, I'm not going to really disagree with you there at all. What do you What do? You do? Like, And it's kind of weird because I was listening to, I think uh, Luke Thomas was talking about it yesterday on the live chat. He said that, you know, it sucks, but... Gegard Mousasi is probably the biggest loser out of this situation because had he been signed to the UFC and stuck around, he could have found himself in a, in a title shot situation after all of this. I mean, because you got Robert Whitaker who's hurt and can't really fight right now. Then you have GSP still playing chicken with the UFC, seeing who will finch first. I mean, they could have booked that fight, Mousasi versus Bisbing, just to kind of just to leverage GSP and the fact that Robert Robert Whitaker is out, he could have been in a title in a title shot right this right this moment. But all they had to do was guarantee him the title shot, though, and he would have stayed. Because mm-hmm. they the same with Jacare. Jacare lost his fight, but the thing is, Musasi was worried a about money and b about his title shot. They didn't think he was worth the money to stay, and they wouldn't guarantee him a title shot either. As far as I know, maybe they did. I assume Musasi would say if that happened. But they didn't pay him the money he wanted, and they didn't guarantee him a title shot. So he could have found himself in it, maybe, but that's a whole lot of things that had to happen for that to fall into place. Do you really want to put your career in in those kind of hands? Hey, Raphael, if you uh, do this, do this, and this happens, and this happens, you'll make $25 an hour. But what if it doesn't? You'll make 10 Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you shouldn't have to depend on things happening. You should be able to, to depend on your employers to respect what you've accomplished, respect your ranking and your ability, and put you into the spot you're supposed to be put in, not 
well, somebody got injured. Now we got to pull you in. It, it, in negotiations, too. I mean, you're supposed to impress somebody with negotiations. If you're not doing that, then you're not really doing your job or you just don't care. I don't think they care. I'm not gonna disagree with you there, man. At all, it was—it's a hell of a situation to watch, and I can't wait to uh, continue watching it unfold. Let's keep it moving, and let's talk about another important uh, piece of news that came out this week. There's gonna be four new—new new, four new white weight classes were adopted to be added to um, mixed martial arts. And to make sure I have these correct, the ABC approved four new weight classes on Wednesday. Those weight classes are 165 which is super lightweight, 175, super welterweight, super middleweight, which is 195, and cruiserweight at 225. Um, I think that this is pretty interesting. I like this move because, you know, you see the big gaps in between the weight classes right now. And while I like the idea that, okay, we're going to keep the, we're, we're going to try to avoid adding all of these new weight classes into MMA to kind of keep the divisions deep. I think this is a move in the right direction, especially with the potential of guys being able to go up and down in, in weight classes like you see in boxing. It doesn't immediately negate the idea of quote-unquote super fights, but it does create an opportunity for guys to be more healthy about their weight cutting practices because it's becoming a serious concern. And I, and I like how health and wellness is becoming a more serious concern. I want to be talking about um, the NFL and CTE report that came out on um, another podcast later on uh, tonight, actually. So it's good to see how these health and wellness matters are becoming more important. I think the addition of these four weight classes speaks directly to that. What are your thoughts on the addition of, of these weight classes and what will their impact be within MMA? Well, the fact of the matter is a lot of guys don't just fall into specific weight classes and forcing people to squeeze down or in some cases move up essentially hinders their ability to fight successfully or effectively. I mean, you know, like the weight class like this might help a Kelvin Gastelum. It might help... Diego Sanchez, I mean, back when he was a little bit younger, closer to his prime. But those guys who are tweeners, they're not small enough to get down to these weight classes without sucking themselves dry, not having any energy or explosiveness. Or they move up in a weight class where they're hugely outweighed and their disadvantages in power and physical strength. These sort of divisions kind of help. The only downside is this starts getting, it could really get out of hand. Like a lot of people don't like how boxing has the junior middleweight and the middleweight and the super middleweight and this would be something similar to that in mixed martial arts you'd have the you know this weight and then the in-between weight of this and then the other weight and then you'd have you'd have to double the belts like right off the back there's like what three more belts right there uh that's, that's, that's four 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 more belts you know on top of the other weight classes you know and and so that gets a little bit confusing with all the titles because you know you're the strike force you're the the um, Bellator this champion, the Risen that champion, the UFC that champion, and you know it, it just it just could get a little bit confusing. But for the fighters, it'd be great. It'd be more titles for guys to compete for. It'd be better weight classes so guys could fight in a in a healthier manner, and it'd give more guys options too. Like you get a little bit older, but you're not big enough for this weight class. Maybe you can fit in between in this weight class. So for the fighters, it's really a win. For the organizations, it might be a little bit more difficult because they're the ones who are going to sell this. And a lot of organizations made hard stances against adding weight classes because they, they believe that you should stick with the weight classes that the they initially introduced. But for the fighters, it's great. You have more chances to win titles. You have more options as far as moving up or moving down. 
and you have more and you have more fights. You you'll be able to extend guys' careers because they'll be able to fight at a comfortable weight. Um one of the things that stood out to me the most is the fact that they kept the welterweight division around. I think that I, I you know, my vote would have been to remove 170, um, let it go 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, and then on from there. Because um, I just I just don't think that that's, it's like, why? Like, why have that one incremental five-pound weight class there when the others are, are 10? You know, you separate them by 10, 25, 35, 45, 55, you know, what's the point of having that one five-pound um, group there? Uh, I agree you know it does create a situation where it be- could become confusing with all of these different champions and all these different title holders but remember we're also at a point in the in the sport uh, especially for the ufc where they're trying to put on more events and th- with this condensed schedule you know if could they have put a 165 pound champion on ufc on fox 25 which would have increased that uh, shows um, ratings. Could they have put a one 225-pound fight on the um, tough finale, tough 25 finale, which could have increased that um, those rankings there? Remember, we have the women's flyweight division that's coming in too through tough um, this next season. So that's another champion there as well. And with the organization continuing to build these. Um, to build these champions, or excuse me, to build these divisions and have an increased need for champions, maybe this is a move uh, at, at the right time. Yeah, I mean, it does. It, it, it gives you more championship fights. It gives you more defending champions. It gives you more chances to develop huge stars and to sell pay-per-views or sell main events as championship events. And like I said before, for the fighters, you get more opportunities. There's more weight classes you can fight at, and there's more, more championships you can vie for and it can extend their careers uh, it's I, I think it's something that has more pluses than minuses like the the main thing i would think would be the confusion of it all and then the legitimacy of these um these weight classes because people are unfamiliar with them so there's going to be a period of time where there's a little bit of a disconnect but uh outside of that i, I don't see how it's i don't see how it's not a win-win i just don't know who's going to be the first person to, to put this into motion yeah, I think it's going to take a little while for it to um, occur. Yeah, that, uh, that's the biggest I, thing. Who's who's going to be the one to take the jump? The UFC takes the jump. Most people will follow suit, but who's going to be the first to say, okay, we're going to start doing this? Or the fighters are going to try and complain enough so they, they can have this? Because a lot of fighters have been compla- complaining about this over the past five to seven years, about I'm just too small. If we, we just had a weight class in between. So are they going to try to push the issue? I mean, how's it going to come about? How's the change going to come about? Because they've made this, they've come up with these weight classes, but... They they can't make anybody do it. Yeah, and um, I think it'll be I think it'll be an organization in California first because they've continuously pushed um, for some improvement in weight cutting. So I think we'll see an organization out there try it first. But I am also on board and pleased with this change in um, weight cutting practices. Um, before we start talking about UFC 214, there's one little bit of news I still want to talk about, and that's Claudia Cadelia facing Jessica Andrade. It was announced, I think, yesterday that these two women will be fighting in the women's strawweight division uh, in, in a five-round bout. Early um, inclinations of this fight there, man. Quick, you know, we'll definitely want to talk about it when it comes around. What are your first thoughts when you're looking at these two uh, Brazilian women facing off against each other? Uh, it's 
probably the best fight you can make at the weight class outside of fighting for the title. And it's a it's a it's a tough match. It's a match between the, basically the two best athletes in the division. So it, I mean, whoever wins this fight, pretty much is probably going to find themselves right back in a t- in the title mix. To be honest, and uh, that's where clearly that's where Claudia wants to be at. Clearly, that's where Jessica wants to be at. So um, basically, this fight is going to determine who's going to challenge next. It's going to be hard for anybody else to get a win bigger than a win over Andrade or a win over. Claudia would have more weight than a win over either one of these girls would have. So, I mean, it, it's going to be a good fight. I, I'll probably favor Gedalia because I figure she's a better, she's actually the better technical fighter. But just on work rate and uh, activity alone, Andrade is a handful for everybody except the very best. And I, I tend to think Claudia is one of the best, but she doesn't have certain attributes that Joanna had that allowed her to kind of control the pace and where the fight took place it's i think it's going to be a little bit more competitive and a much more uh much more two-way traffic in this fight yeah i'm definitely excited to see this type of fight um Gedalia, both of these women are two of my favorite women to fight just because andrage is so violent and Gedalia, you know when she came into the organization i was interested in seeing what she would do as a member of the uh ufc so i'm looking forward to um looking forward to this fight and what it uh, could bring for both the division and both of these two athletes. But if we're talking about any fights that anyone's really looking forward to, we have UFC 214 to talk about. And this is, you know, this is the biggest card of the year. It's probably one of the biggest cards in recent memory. Three title fights um, are booked. You know, I'm knocking on wood right now. You can hear me knocking on wood that nothing happens to this um, showcase here. But let's start at the top of the card. We got Daniel Cormier. We have, um, we have John Jones. Probably one and two, one and three uh, are the top men or top athletes in MMA. Who do you take in this fight? Let's start right there. Who do you have um, winning this fight? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with Jones until something else happens. I have to go with Jones. I just think it's a it's actually a bad style matchup for Cormier. Just with Jones's height, the range he strikes at, the he can strike at range, the variety of strikes he has the volume of strikes he has, how effective and how physically strong he is, and with his athleticism, it really takes away all the advantages that Cormier usually has. Usually Cormier is the better athlete. Usually he's the far better wrestler in the MMA context. Usually he can dictate, if not completely dominate it, in clinches. And usually his athleticism is enough to make up for the technical holes he has in his game, like the his habit of parrying, it works against guys his size and guys a little bit slower who don't have that kind of reach. Jones has that reach. So he parries one shot, he opens himself up for another, takes himself out of position. When he gets those clinches, he can't he can't manhandle Jones because of Jones' height and, and Jones' own efficiency in the clinch with the strikes, elbows, knees, short punches, knees to the head and the body. It kind of offsets any sort of control or physical, physical strength advantage that Cormier would have. And with the length and the variety of techniques that Jones throws, because Cormier doesn't work his way into range, he kind of leaps in, he kind of takes huge rushes. That doesn't work against Jones because he's got so much more distance to cover. So all the way in, he's getting beat up by Jones. All the way out, he's getting beat up by Jones. And that that's just a problem. It's just stylistically, it's, a, it's an uphill battle for him. I understand he's sharper, but he's also older. He's also coming off of like 
back to back to back to back fights where he's taken a lot of punishment, gone a lot of rounds, and taken a lot of damage. Had a broken nose against Anthony Johnson, got knocked half across the way across the ring versus Anthony Johnson. Had the five round war with Gustafson. You know, he he's just he's had a lot of very tough punishing fights, and now he's two years older. And I don't care how much better he's gotten technically, your stamina, your explosiveness, your durability doesn't get better as you get older. You can maybe maintain it. You can keep it from dropping off the face of a cliff, but it doesn't get better. Yeah, you know, it's definitely uh, quite a drop there, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out from that aspect of the fight. Talk to me about what you think of the lead-up to this event. Um, how has the promotion been leading up to this fight? Uh, are you? Does it make you any more intrigued to see uh, what happens when these two men get back into the cage? There's two things I have a concern for. One is, I don't know John Jones. He might be, I guess as long as he's great to his parents, his coaches, his friends, and his family, I guess it doesn't matter how he treats the rest of us because we don't have to deal with him. We like him because he's a fighter. We don't like him because he's a great person. So it just stands out. Like they say, this is the real John Jones. The real John Jones is like such a dick, dude. Like he's, I don't know if he's an awful person, but he comes off as very unpleasant a lot of the time. Like he just doesn't care. Doesn't care about anybody who's not on, who's not in his team or part of his team. He's just here to do what he's here to do, and damn everybody else. And it creates this this dynamic where the stuff he's saying to, to DC has this extra venom, and his ability to troll and verbally attack DC. It's just so. It comes from such a dark place. It's so mean spirited, and it just it makes you wonder like. They say all the greatest fighters have this mean streak in them. And John Jones used to try to cover that up. And now it's just out for full, you know, every, everybody to see. He's got this ugly, mean, vicious streak in him. And it makes me, like, you know, even though he's, he should be rusty, he shouldn't be sharp, it makes me wonder, like, what he's going to do to Cormier if Cormier slows a step, if Cormier isn't as ready as he thinks he is. Like, what's he going to do to him, not just physically, but mentally, and that, which brings me to the second thing that makes this fight interesting, Cormier's mind state. Cormier's on this. He was on performance-enhancing drugs. I wasn't at my best. I made these mistakes. I haven't seen him actually give John Jones pure, clean credit for defeating him. I haven't heard him say that. It's always these things and these angles and, well, you know, I, I got John where I want him because he's rusty and I'm sharp and I've been getting better. He, if he's fighting a rusty John Jones who's been inactive for two years, who's no longer on PDs and has his life together, and somehow and John Jones beats him, what does that do to Daniel Cormier? Because he's getting John Jones in the best possible circumstances for a victory. If he can't beat this John Jones, that means he was never able or anywhere close to being John Jones. And I don't know what that does to DC because he's a real competitor. He wants to be the guy, and he's never been the guy in any level of his combat sports competition history of his life he never has he's always been like number two in the biggest spot and i don't know what it does to him if he fights john jones and this john jones beats him much less stops him somehow in a fight i mean that's not a um that's not a bad point there you know what happens if he does get stopped and how will that impact cormier's long-term um long-term confidence i guess for lack of a better uh Word. I was listening to, again, I think it was, uh, what's his name? Luke Thomas, again, was, uh, he was asked a reader question of whether or not if Cormier loses, will he retire? And I think that that is a, um, that's a good, great question there. I, I mean, how old is Daniel Cormier? Cormier he's is... He's almost 40. I think he's 39. Um, yeah. 
let me pull up let me pull up his his age real quick because I'm curious I don't know and I don't want to get this wrong uh he is 38 excuse me he's 38 his birthday is in March so yeah he's on um, 38 but you know you gotta know you want wonder if is if this is it if he gets the loss here if he wins do you make an immediate an immediate trilogy fight I think you do, and and the thing about it is, if he wins, I, I don't know John Jones' mindset, but if I'm John Jones, if I, even if I lose, if it if it's even competitive and I lose, that makes Cormier look so bad. A guy who's been off for 15 months, twice, has only had one fight, and you're going life and death with him. Like you need to dominate this guy. You need to walk through this guy. He's not sharp. He hasn't been in taking real fire. Even though he's the best, he hasn't been doing anything except training. He hasn't been in the real. He hasn't been beating top contenders. And if Jones loses, Jones can always say, "Well, I've been out for 15 months. He didn't finish me. It was tit for tat. It was back and forth." And in a trilogy, I would, I would, I would pick Jones again because that time Jones would have seen the very best DC in this fight. DC would have fought the worst Jones, and now Jones will be in better shape. He'll be better prepared. He'll know exactly what DC has, and DC will be a little bit older going into a rematch. So I'd still pick Jones. You know, it, it just seems like psychologically he's in DC's head. You know, DC's usually very composed. He's very structured. He he plays the game, and he dictates to other guys. He says the clever comments that gets him upset, he makes them look like buffoons. It's not that way with Jones. He tries to say it's just business, but it always gets so personal with him. And he doesn't fight as disciplined as he does when he fights other guys. And the fact that Jones is such a bad matchup means that every undisciplined attack and mistake he makes gets punished even worse because he's against a guy who can attack him in every single area he's weak and make him pay for every mistake he makes. He doesn't have these huge areas margins margin for error. He he has too many holes in his actual technical game that a lot, that don't give him room for error against a guy with John Jones height, length, variety of strikes, physical strength and ability to to transition ranges from clinch to striking, from mid-range to outside. And can go from clinching, beating you up, to clinching, taking you down, or just outright shoot and take you down. Like Jones just can do so much, and it and and Daniel's game isn't isn't nearly as fundamentally sound as they try to make it out to be. I actually believe AKA in some cases leans on his physical ability a little bit more than they should, and haven't filled in the gaps. And those and those those holes, that's where Jones takes them every single time. Um, how do you see, what do you, what's your prediction for the finish? You're looking at a 25 minute fight. You're looking at a stoppage. What are you looking at? Oh man. I think, I think whoever wins this fight, I think it's going to, I think Jones is going to win it. I think whoever wins it, if it's going to go to either way, I think it could be a stoppage. I, I don't like even let's say, let's say Cormier is the winner. I can't see Jones just quitting. Jones has never seemed to be that kind of guy. So for him to lose the title, lose the fight, I think he'd have to be stopped. I don't think he's going to be outworked for five rounds by Cormier. And um, I think Jones can outwork Cormier for five rounds. We've already seen that. But I, if Jones is really free and he's just going to be himself and not care, I, I really think he can get a finish. I don't know if he'll be submission. I don't know if they'll have to pull him off him. But um, I really think it's going to be a stoppage win for Jones. I, I just don't think I don't think I don't think Cormier can not just set a pace, but set it and build on that pace he sets. That's what it's going to take to beat Jones. He can't just set a pace and set physicality. He's got to be able to build on it each and every round. And Cormier, he fights to win rounds. Jones fights to win fights. And there's a difference between that. And that's what's going to be the difference. Cormier will win a round. He'll push him in a round. But I don't think he can, he can ramp it up any higher than he's going to be able to ramp it up at the beginning in the first two rounds. 
And the minute he slows, Jones is going to be all over him. Jones is willing to give up rounds. Jones is willing to give up some control to get in little shots, to get in little counters, to make it harder. So then on the back end, he, he has the energy and the timing and the rhythm to make him pay and to close the show, which is what he did last time. And I think I think he's out for blood, and he might finish him this time. I mean, he is he he hasn't been in, he hasn't been active. So if if Cormier somehow got him, it wouldn't be terribly shocking. But just based on the actual matchup and the actual skills of the people involved, looking at it from a pure skill, it's not even close. The only thing you can say is Jones isn't sharp. If Jones had fought three months ago, nobody would have think Cormier has any chance in hell of winning. The only thing they're thinking of is Cormier applies a lot of pressure. Jones isn't sharp. That's the only thing they have. They, they can't name one technical thing that Cormier can do that says that he wins his fight. I can name five or six things that Jones does that can win him the fight. Let me ask you this. Have you seen anything in recent developments, in recent Cormier fights? Let me, I'm trying to just add a, let me, before I answer this question, let me look at something really quickly. So Cormier's fought in April of this year. He fought in July of last year, and this is since... Um, Jones has, has been out. So July last year at UFC 200, he fought in April of this year at UFC 210. And I believe the Alexander Gustafsson fight at UFC 192 was while Jones was out. Since though, in those wins, or in those, his last four fights, you know, two wins over Anthony Johnson, one over Silva, and one over Gustafsson, have you seen any new wrinkles in his game that will make him more dangerous against John Jones the second time around? To be honest, not. I mean, he's he's improved some things about his entries. His shots are a little bit tighter. He he's he seems to be able to fight it with a more a little bit more controlled aggression. And uh, he he's transitioning to me. He's transitioning between ranges a little bit better. He doesn't get stuck at certain ranges. He's learned how to improve his position a little bit better. But it's again, he's done it against guys who who are very limited in their skill sets. You know, I mean, Gustafsson is pretty limited in his offensive repertoire. Johnson, for all his power and athleticism, can't seem to go more than a round and a half and, and seems to quit every time it gets tough. You know, I mean, the guys he's beaten haven't haven't had the strength in key areas to push back. Like, when he pushes them in certain areas, they capitulate to him. They don't have an answer for it, whether it's physical or technical. John Jones can challenge him in all the areas he finds hit, that are his safety zones. The, the areas he's strongest in... Jones can challenge him in, and that's the difference. He's used to dominating in key areas, and against Jones, he cannot dominate. He 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 ran Gustafsson in the ground. He just out-hustled him. Gustafsson didn't have enough left in him to handle what Cormier has. I don't know that he can do that against Jones. He out-grappled and physically and mentally broke Johnson. I've never seen I've never seen John Jones break before, and I've seen him take punishment. You know. I mean, he's he's hurt guys, he's rocked guys, but John Jones has already taken his best shot. He knows the power Cormier has. Cormier didn't have him rocked. He didn't have him on skates. He didn't have him covering up and running. So even though he's had some improvements, I don't know that he's improved enough, and I don't think I don't I don't think that he's improved enough to make a difference because even in the areas he's strongest in, Jones can match him. He can't match Jones in the areas he's strongest in. He just doesn't have the skill set. So what, um, where would he have to improve in order to be able to handle Jones? Um, the one thing, his kicking game would have to be a lot better because if he, can, he conceded a range. He stopped kicking against Jones. He kicked Jones a couple times. When Jones took him down, he didn't want to kick anymore because he didn't want to get taken down and have Jones on top of him. 
his kicking game would need to be more diverse and it need to be slicker slicker setups. His footwork is a boxer in the boxing range. He'd need to be lights out. He need to be able to slip, roll, get under shots, work the body and those head and body combinations at a high pace and with a high level of accuracy. That would be two things right there. As far as the clinching, I don't know that he can do anything about that because of Jones' height. Jones' height and his physical strength makes it a little bit harder for him to really gain any real control over him, to really just ragdoll him or dictate pace to him. But improving his boxing footwork and his ability to work his way into distance instead of getting beat up at distance and then just bullying his way in or trying to athlete his way in by leaping in, that would be better. But he hasn't. His his footwork hasn't gotten that good. He doesn't know how to get into range without taking a bunch of shots. So even when he's in the positions he wants to be in, he's still taking punishment all the way on the way into that position and all the way back out from that position. His footwork hasn't gotten good enough. It's gotten good. It's gotten better. It's gotten more consistent, but it hasn't gotten good enough, in my opinion. And he doesn't have fight-changing power. He doesn't hit guys and they just go away. He doesn't hit anybody and they just went flying. So that's why I'm saying I don't know how he wins this fight because he'd have to be technically on point in these areas for five rounds. Unless Jones is just shot, and Jones might be rusty, Jones might not be sharp, but he's not shot. He's not physically, he's not physically, he doesn't lack anything physically, and even if he did, he hates Cormier. And he's not going to want to have Cormier dancing around saying that he beat Jones. So he's got that extra incentive to push through whatever obstacles that Cormier presents to him. So let's talk about one last question in reference to these two men fighting this weekend. What is this fight? mean to the legacy for both men both jones and cormier where what does a victory mean a victory and a defeat mean for both men on sunday um july 30th a victory for cormier means for the first time in his combat sports he is the all-round best the very best in the world it essentially turns him into a hall of famer i mean he could be a hall of famer now but he basically be an all-time great he might be right behind jones or he might be right ahead of him but a clean, decisive win, especially if it's a stoppage win over Jones, that carries a lot of weight. Of course, on the other side of it, it doesn't carry as much weight because Jones is coming off a 15-month break. He can't be possibly be sharp. So he'd have to beat him at least twice for it to really stick. But it, it would change his... He would he'd be able to say he's the actual champ, he's the man, and he would have... Everybody would have to acknowledge and respect him as the very best guy in the world instead of the guy holding the place for the very best guy. A loss, just proves what everybody else thinks anyways that he's number two he's never been the best he was a placeholder so a loss just affirms what everybody thinks a win's the only thing that changes things for him a win is the only thing that changes things a loss just is a reminder that he's always been number two and he'll he'll always be number two a win for jones um would be expected it'd be impressive because he's coming back off such a large break but it would be expected because everybody thinks he's the better man and the better fighter a loss i don't even know that a loss is so damaging because once again he's coming off of 15 months and he's fighting the guy who's been fighting ranked guys month after month and been very active and fighting a lot and is looking the best he's looked in his entire career. So I don't know that it really hurts Jones. I think if Jones loses two in a row to him, that might be a different look. But the things he's accomplished have already stood, so he'd still be an all-time great. He just might not be considered the greatest because he, he would lose to uh, Cormier. But he'd still be considered an all-time great. And he'd have to lose to Cormier twice before I really think anybody bought to the fact that Cormier is better because he's coming off such a long such a long break 
Yeah, I think I think I, mean, I think we're gonna have a lot of questions answered um, after this fight on on Saturday, and I cannot wait for it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I definitely want to sit down and make sure I catch every bit of this um, fight. So let's talk about another title um, defense on this bout with um, Tyron Woodley and Damian Maya. This is another fight that, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not getting talked about as much because of the card it's on, but this is a fight I'm really interested in. I wrote a piece about Damian Maya earlier this week, and I kind of dubbed it, you know, after that Batman line where he's the hero that the, that everyone needs but nobody wants um, because Damian Maya embodies everything that's right with, with martial arts. He embodies the... He embodies the principles that moms and dads take their children to martial arts uh, academies for and put them in to the programs. Um, if you look at what he said over the last few years about wanting to win without harming his opponent or really hurting them, he he stood near that and he continues to show that jujitsu works and he uses it to apply his will against his uh, opponents here. And on the other hand, you have Tyron Woodley, a man who has been... Um, a less than stellar like uh, champion, someone who and he puts on you know interesting fights. You know he fought he fought Stephen Thompson twice in a very tactical, maybe not the most exciting fight, but he got the win that he needed to get. Um, and you have both of these men who are standout fighters, standout athletes. Nothing wrong about any of them. You don't see any of them, either one of them getting any DUIs. You see them ending up in jail. You don't see them in any TMZ reports. Um, but this fight still kind of, I think that this fight doesn't have the appeal of either one of the other two title fights, but still it's something that really interests me. Break down this fight between Woodley and Maya for me and tell me what your first thoughts are. Uh, my first thought, it's really a fight that could go either way. Like Maya could really just submit him at any point in the fight, or Tyron could just blow him out of the water. It's one of those fights that, like, if Tyron just blows him out, it, it's, it's, just, it's just dangerous on either end because the fight could go either way and either guy could win it in a very decisive manner. Um, the biggest issue I think there is is people talk about the wrestling of Damian Maya. It's not great. How does it get guys down? But I've said this before. His improved footwork done him a huge favor as far as his ability to navigate distances and get all the way in on guys. He's faced some of the most skilled offensive fighters. Jorge Masvidal is very good on the feet, good footwork, good distance control, puts together good combinations, ac excellent accuracy. Carlos Condit is like one of the best fighters in MMA history, and I don't think that's hyperbole to say that. And Damian Mai was able to get in on these guys without really taking too much punishment. I mean, Donald Cerrone is considered one of the better strikers in the mixed martial arts, and Jorge lit him up. He couldn't really put combinations together on Damian Maia, and I understand they're different fighters, but Damian Maia doesn't have the pedigree, the experience, or the physical, the athleticism of a Donald Cerrone, yet he was able to navigate a very dangerous counterpuncher and MMA boxer in Masvidal without really getting touched. He was able to cut the cage off on Carlos Condit and get his hands on him without so much as eating a jab. That's very impressive to do against that caliber of fight. He did the same thing to Rick Story. Matt Brown, another guy who's usually an offensive machine, couldn't couldn't really get anything consistently going against Damian Maia. And Damian Maia is not a top athlete. He's not explosive. He's not very quick. He doesn't have a lot of power. He's not incredibly strong. He just has... A good, a clear estimation of who he is as a fighter, and an excellent ability to execute by putting himself in positions 
on the ground and on the feet to get to where he wants to be. And his pressure and ability to cut down the cage and to feign his way in and to, and to control guys with the threat of his takedown and the threat of him getting his hands on him is amazing. It essentially has made him untouchable on the feet. And Tyron Woodley is already a guy who doesn't like to throw a lot of volume. He didn't want to throw a lot of volume against Steven Thompson. Why? He didn't want to catch a counter and get, get knocked out. Somebody's going to say, well, Maya doesn't throw like that. Well, guess what? Maya's, Maya's a killer on the ground. He's the best guy on the ground by far. Is Tyron Woodley going to want to miss a, miss a punch, miss a kick, miss a knee, get taken down, or have Maya take his back standing and go for a submission? No. So once again, he's going to try and pick the... I think he's going to take kind of a slow, efficiency-based type fight because he doesn't want to give Maya any openings. He doesn't want to miss a big overhand right and get taken down. He doesn't want to throw a big kick and have it caught and get taken down. He's, he's got the same obstacles, just in a different realm. Before he was on the feet getting countered and KO'd, now he's getting taken down and submitted on the ground. And he knows that if Maya gets him on the ground, he's going to be in a world of trouble. Even if he's on top, he's still in danger. Maya's that good at transitioning and switching positions. And, and let me ask you this. Being as a person who has extensive grappling background, even with Tyrone's Willie wrestling, do you think that he can survive on the ground with Maya? I mean, do you really Man, think that no. he can survive extended multiple exchanges on the ground with Maya? What's crazy about this is that Maya almost doesn't care where he is on the ground. He, when he fought Matt Brown, Matt Brown was doing a good job of fighting off takedowns, getting back to his feet. So what the hell does Damian Maya do? He goes in there, he pulls guard and pulls Matt Brown nearly into mount before um, going about getting the finish there. And, you know, it's, that's ridiculous if, if you legit think about it. I mean, this dude, he's not as – he's not like Ryan Hall with the way Ryan Hall pulls guard and is attacking. Damian Maia is pulling guard almost fully, fully betting that you have no chance on the mat against him and right now man i don't think i mean i can't think of a, of a welterweight that has the that has the ability to, to, to hang with him on the floor um gunnar nelson is perhaps the second best grappler in the division and look what happened to him yeah and so that's 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 my logic how is woodley going to open up knowing that anytime he misses or swings or get gets off balance could mean him being on the ground with a guy who's been able to control and outwork and submit all the best fighters in the world. I know Woodley's a smart guy. Sometimes I think he's a little bit too smart for his own good, but it's going to be another low output fight. His, his only two instances are to try and pick and peck his way through a fight, land a big shot, and stay away from Maya. Or his other instance is just to go out and cut a, and you, like a hot knife through butter and bl blow Maya away. But the thing about it is you come out there looking for the KO, and you don't land that shot, you miss that counter, you come in with that big hook and you miss, or that knee, and he gets a hold of you, it, it's huge problems. And if he thinks being on the feet and exchanging and moving around is exhausting, everybody knows that when you get in the, even if you're a trained grappler and wrestler, getting in extended multiple exchanges with a high-level wrestler or grappler is, is more exhausting than being in striking exchanges or, or pot-shotting, moving around the cage. So it's like he presents all this all this danger to, to Tyron Woodley, and I haven't seen that Tyron's willing to take the chances or push a pace that, that's going to bring him to victory. I, I've, I actually think Damian Maia is going to take this. I, I could see Woodley walking right through him, but I just think that even though Maya can't go hard for five rounds, he will attempt to. He'll fight through it. 
He'll keep pushing, he'll keep looking, he'll keep searching. If nothing else, he'll be the aggressor in it. And from what I've seen of his footwork and his defense, he's good enough to he's he's got a big enough durability to take some shots and good enough defense to kind of roll away from some, kind of block some, or get in without getting touched. And I think for Tyron Woolley to to handle that, he's gonna have to throw more volume, use some pivots, move his feet, and kind of work at a pace that he's not comfortable working at. And and Woodley doesn't like to take chances. He won't push a pace, whether it's defensively or offensively. So I, I really think that Damian Maia can extend him and finish him. But then again, like I said, I could see at any point Tyron landing a big shot and Damian just getting iced because Woodley has life-changing power. And and he's got life-changing hand speed and, and foot speed. He's just so explosive. So at any moment, he could put Maia away, but I could easily see Maia extending him and, and taking him to task over five rounds. Yeah, man, I'm I'm very interested in seeing how this fight kind of how how this fight falls into place with these two men who are so great in doing what they are definitely doing. Um, let's move down the card there and let's talk about another important fight in Chris Cyborg and Tanya Evinger. You know, uh, Cyborg's kind of done the 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 dance from partner to partner. For originally, she had Jermaine Deronomy, then it became um, Megan Anderson. Well, that fight was never going to happen. No, <laughs> oh, well, th- that's who that that's what the idea was. Then the fight became Megan Anderson, and she had to drop out for personal reasons. Now we got Tanya Evinger, who's a Invicta Bantamweight champion, jumping in to uh, take this fight on short notice. How do you see this fight going, and um, what are some of your thoughts? I think Evinger is a very tough, durable fighter. Um, people are comparing her to like, like the Diaz brothers, which is fine, and I can go with that. But um, she's fighting like the hammer. The hammer of, of the women's um, division right now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about something that Cyborg said earlier this week. She, she, I think she said it today in a minute. But um, talk to me about your thoughts on, on this fight. How do you see it going? And does Evinger have what it takes to take um, Cyborg in the deep waters? The funniest thing I said this on Twitter. The funniest thing about this is Cyborg hasn't been in a fight in years. Essentially, he she's been the aggressor in one-sided assaults that happen to take place in cages. She hasn't been pushed. She's been extended because girls have been taking beatings, but she hasn't really been in a fight, a competitive back and forth, any sort of real resistance type fight in years. I think Marlis Coonan was the toughest fight she's had recently, and Coonan essentially was just tying her up, trying to get takedowns and getting taken down herself and beaten up over five rounds. Um, it, it, it's On paper, Cyborg is probably the better overall grappler. She's got the better power. She's a better athlete. She's a better striker. She's better in the clinch. And um, it it really, on paper, it's not a very tight matchup. The fight, what it really comes down to is can Tanya Evinger take control of the fight? And what I mean by that is Cyborg's no longer just a wild brawler. She's actually more of a aggressive counterpuncher. She puts a threat on you and a, by, by using her footwork to cut the cage off, and she makes you give her something. You take a shot, you try to throw out a, a probing jab or a kick, and she counters you with big power. And then she gets punches away in that clinch, and she just has her way with you. If Tanya Evinger can somehow make her react and put her on the back foot and put her in a position where she's trying to figure out what's going on, Evinger has a chance. If Evinger can extend her and put her in extended grappling exchanges, she has a chance. The thing about it is Evinger's only chance of winning this fight is going to require her to take huge amounts of punishment. She's not going to get easy takedowns on Cyborg. She's not going to hold Cyborg down easily. She doesn't have the power to just back Cyborg up with, with power shots. And even if she wants to exchange with her, she's going to have to be able to take Cyborg's best shots. Every plan she has, every way she has the victory requires her to take a beating. 
and as tough as she is and as physical she is, she essentially beats girls up and walks them down. The fact of the matter, she hasn't faced one girl who's capable of standing up to her, phys- who's really capable of standing up to her physicality and testing, t- testing her with their own physicality. But even saying that, all her fights have been a struggle. They've been competitive. They've been back and forth. She's had to go two, three, four rounds before she can get a finish, whether it's by strikes or by submission. She hasn't blown anybody away. She hasn't just crushed and dominated everybody. She just basically outfought them extended them, walked them down, and then beat them into the ground. That's what she's done. And that would be the best chance she has for victory against Cyborg. The only thing is, Cyborg doesn't train like she's got the advantages. Cyborg's been testing herself in grappling tournaments and striking tournaments. She trains and prepares like she's facing the best person. I don't know that the whole Cyborg has that Tanya Evinger is the person with the athleticism or the technical skill. Her best bet is to getting extended grappling exchanges, try to extend Cyborg, and try to force Cyborg to have to be on the react instead of being the aggressor and dictating when and where the fight is going to take place. And basically just push her and see that, and, and see if Cyborg's menta- her, psych- her psyche and her physical conditioning holds up when she just can't blow somebody away, when she's pounding somebody and they're still fighting for position. Because there's a difference between getting taken down and controlled and conceding it and fighting to scramble up. Or really fighting for a takedown, or willing be willing to get into exchanges, or if you shoot for a takedown to defend it, you know, chain chain the takedowns, go to another takedown, go to another takedown, hang on the leg, just do whatever you can to put a little bit more exhaustion or a little bit more doubt into the mind of the person who's a superior athlete and superior technician. But once again, like I said, that's going to require her to take a huge beating, and the question is, can she take the beating? Can she take the abuse long enough for her plan to come into to come into fruition? And for her to get the opening she needs to get to finish Cyborg. That's what Nate Diaz did to 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 Connor. That's what essentially Don, Daniel Cormier did to Anthony Johnson. But in each case, both guys had to take huge amounts of punishment before they could get to that spot. Even Misha Tate versus Holly Holmes to a degree. She got touched up all fight long and was able to hang in there, mentally hang in there long enough to when she got her opportunity to get take down and finish the fight. The question becomes, can Evinger take what Cyborg has the offer long enough to get her tired, to get into some kind of good position, to kind of make her work and find the opening she needs to submit her or get her to the ground and, and to control her. And I don't know how likely that is. I, I really don't know how likely that is because from what I've seen of Avenger, as tough as she is, I don't know that she's that tough. And when Cyborg hits people, they look a different kind of way than when they get hit by other people. You know, all the girls she's knocked out have been known as very durable fighters. Lena Landsberg, World champion in Muay Thai, Cyborg just savaged her. Leslie Smith, known as one of the most durable fighters out there, one round, finished her. You know, Gina Carano was a tough girl. Cyborg just stomped her. Marlis Kunin, very tough. Cyborg dominated and stomped her. You know, it, it just, it's hard to picture a manner in which case Avenger is able to stand up to the abuse, keep up with the pace, and turn the fight in her favor. But if she can take that beating, She'll have an opportunity to turn the fight in her favor. I just don't know that she can. Yeah, I don't know if she can either. Um, I think that that's taking those shots is asking for a lot. Um, and I, I, it's just like, man, how much can you take before um, you continuously, before you give in? Um, I, I think we're, we're really going to see a testament of that uh, this weekend because I know Evans is going to go out there and try to make the fight dirty. Um, I don't think she's going to get the victory. I think that this is a fight. This is a fight for something. Cyborg to win, but I think it's going to. She's going to try to make it ugly. The question is whether or not she can do that before um, Cyborg beats the brakes off of her, which she's been so prone to do 
And, and think about this one last thing. Cyborg has to win this fight. I mean, Cyborg is not a favorite of the UFC. They might be cheering her now, but if Cyborg loses this fight, it's really over for her. She's later on in her career as far as her age goes. She's never really made huge money. She's never been really pushed as a champion. Like, on this kind of level, if she loses the Avenger, it's like Ty when Tyson lost. The curtains pull back. You know, she'll get more fights, but she's no longer undefeatable. She's no longer able to be pushed as this unstoppable force. Especially if she gets beaten up and walked down by a girl who's fighting a full weight class below her who struggled or had tough fights with every other girl who's not one-tenth of Cyborg's caliber of skill or athleticism. You know, a, a loss a loss would be crushing. A loss would essentially be Cyborg getting tired, immensely breaking, and just getting finished by submission or getting beaten up. Either way, it's the kind of loss that takes away her whole mystique. It's a, like a Holly Holm-type loss for Ronda Rousey. Yeah, and I think that was, um, what's also important about this is that, you know, this is one of the last two fights Cyborg has on her deal. And she also has a clause in her deal where after October 2017, she can decide whether to walk away or not. So come October, if she wins Saturday, she's going to be the biggest free agent that we've seen in the sport to date. And everybody's going to be fighting over her. And it's going to be interesting to see how much the UFC how much they value her because now they're going to be at a point where they have to put the money where their mouth is because they're going to be looking at losing the biggest female athletes, uh, female star, and probably the biggest Brazilian star in the sport right now. Um, and if she loses, if, 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 if she, she loses, if she loses, it's a, it's a whole nother problem. It's a whole nother problem. A whole nother problem is definitely the, um, the, the right way of uh, saying it there. So I want to keep moving down this card, talking about some of the other things we have going on. Robbie Lawler, Donald Cerrone. It's funny everyone's talking about this fight um, as being so exciting. I, I'm going to kind of lean on, again, what Luke Thomas is, is saying about this fight as well, where he's saying he's going to be watching it through his fingers because both of these guys are on, they're on the cusp, man. They're right on the cusp of being considered um, punchy. Uh, what do you think? Is this going to be one of those moments where we see a great bar burner, or are we looking at two guys who may be on the cusp of being considered shot? I, it, it's like a, I actually read an article on this one for the MMA ratings about this whole fight, and one of the main points I'm making about this is if Robbie Lawler would have had a back-and-forth fight with Tyron Woodley and maybe lost the decision or even got knocked out late, nobody would, would has a chance. The reason people think Cerrone has a chance is because they think that Robbie Lawler is shot because he got blasted with one shot and he was done. And he, he had no answer for it. Um, Cerrone, Cerrone himself, given all, he's young. He's like only, what, 33? But the fact of the matter, he, at one point he was fighting like every other month. And he wasn't fighting the, the highest caliber of guys. But that still means sparring. That still means rolling. And then actually being in fight and taking live punches. The fact of the matter is, even though he's only 33, he's probably more like 43 or 47 as far as being a fighter because of how many fights he's taken and the nature of the fights he's been in. So I understand Luke Thomas's position altogether. The only reason this fight is get, getting people excited is because it's like nostalgia. People are saying, I remember Robbie Lawler being this badass, tough guy who gets in these wars and throws these bombs. And they're, they're hoping Robbie Lawler can be who he used to be. In the case of Donald Cerrone... They're actually hoping Donald Cerrone will be the guy that Justin Gaethje is because they've always marketed Donald Cerrone as this tough, rough, down-home guy who doesn't take a step back and he can take all sorts of punishment. That's not Donald Cerrone. Donald Cerrone has never really taken good shots. He's never really re 
responded to punishment very well. I can I can point you to multiple fights where he's been rocked by guys who aren't considered big hitters, especially to the body. So it's all a matter of perception. Donald Cerrone's the guy who, who draws a line in the sand and never backs up, and he's a super tough guy. Robbie Lawler's still the ultimate warrior who will go out on his shield and take your soul if you allow him to. It's all perception. Neither one of these guys really is legitimately top-ranked welterweight based on their last performances. It's like a fun fight. They're doing this for the fans. They're doing this for money. They're doing this because it's the safest fight for both guy, and it's also the biggest fight for both guy in division. Cerrone Lawler is the more compelling and interesting and money-generating fight than Damian Maia and Tyron Woodley. It's the biggest fight in the welterweight division between two guys who are very popular with the MMA community and outside of the MMA community. That's why this fight's being made, and I do believe both guys are very close to the end of their careers. You can't fight as long as they did and still fight fight the way they did and still compete at anywhere near the same level. I mean, even if they've improved greatly on both ends, the fact of the matter is neither guy has the chin, the reflexes, the timing, or the athleticism they used to have, and neither one takes a shot the way they used to, and that should be a big concern in a division full of big, strong wrestlers who can hit hard and big, strong strikers who can hit hard. It's really just a fun fight for the fans. I favor Lawler because uh, Cerrone has a history of having problems with guys who are name fighters, guys who attack the body, guys who hit hard, and guys who can box. Lawler checks off every single one of those boxes. I'm not saying he can't lose because I don't know where his chin is at. He tends to get a little lazy in fights. He'll give rounds away so that he can make his late round push. But if his chin isn't what it used to be or his durability isn't what it used to be, or like Misha State said, the fire isn't there, it won't matter when the first time he gets clipped or the first time he gets tested, he won't have it in him to, to sell out and get that knockout or close that round out. And he needs that. He wants to be in division. And as far as uh, Cerrone, uh, like I said, I think he's he's coming up close on his last legs. He's gotten better. But the fact of the matter is he still has a hard time with pressure. He still has a hard time with boxing. And um, he's taken a lot of abuse in the last two fights he was in. Matt Brown hit him a lot. And then he got knocked out by Jorge Masvidal, who is not a power puncher. And, and to be honest, Cerrone's never taken the best shot in the world, and it's only gotten worse with the amount of fights he's been in and the age he's at now. So, yes, it is kind of a fight where you're just kind of scared. It could be over really quick. It might be really long. But either way, you know, both guys are going to leave something in the cage. And uh, one guy, whoever wins, isn't a contender, isn't considered an elite. He just beat another guy who is, who is flawed and on the downside himself. This fight doesn't tell us anything about the division. It's just a fun, interesting fight. All it does is tell us who's not a contender. Either one of them won't be a contender because they lost, or both of them won't be contenders because they won't look good in the fight. But it, just, it's not tell, it doesn't tell us who is a contender. It just tells us who isn't. Very true. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't give us enough um, for this fight. I don't think you know. We don't get a contender out of it. We get a fun fight, but I don't think it's going to be that type of fun fight that. Um, I don't think it's going to be a fun fight, and you know, yeah. I mean, you you can tell you can tell they wanted it for a money reason because usually when somebody gets injured, they force another opponent in there, or they just you know cancel the fight altogether. You know, like Dustin Poirier Alvarez had a good fight. Why didn't they just get moved to another car? No, we're going to put him in Gagey. But with a fight like this, they're like, no, we're going to make this fight happen. The minute, minute they announce this fight, they've been. They've had it marked down whether Cerrone lost or Lawler was going to sit out for another year. They were going to make this fight because this is the kind of fight that fans tune in to see, casual and hardcore fans tune in to see. So they know this is a money fight, not a Conor McGregor money fight, but the, ne the next, the lower tier, and they were going to make this fight regardless. 
but nobody has any faith that either one of these guys could be the top five welterweights in their division. At least nobody I know. I know I, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't think they could be Thompson, Woodley. I don't even know either one of these guys could be Colby Covington at this stage of their game. Basically. Um, so let's see what else did we I wanted to talk about on this card here. Are there so many there's so many fights here that stand out. You have the Aljamain Sterling Hinn and Brown fight. I'm looking forward to that. You have Jason Knight and um who's he fighting? Ricardo Lamas as well. Yeah, okay. So look through the rest of the card and tell me what stands out for you and what's most important for UFC 214 that we have not talked about yet. The two fights you mentioned, the Aljamain Sterling fight is interesting to me. Because he's fighting Burrell, and Burrell hasn't really looked good in years. But once again, similar to the whole Jones-Cormier thing, Burrell's just a very bad matchup for Sterling. And Sterling, he held out and he got the, the contract he wanted, or closer to the contract he wanted. And ever since then, the UFC just been throwing him these high-risk, low-reward fights against guys who, you know, he beats Brian Caraway. What does that really do for him? You know, the guys he's been fighting aren't the kind of guys who are flashy, sexy names who push you into the public consciousness and have them talking title fights. But they're guys who are all super, super tough and are just as capable of beating you as you are capable of beating them. And in the case of Hinnan Burrell, Burrell isn't who he used to be, not as far as his durability or his athleticism. But even Burrell was getting beat half to death by TJ Dillashaw and he had bad weight cuts and he was out of shape. He was still almost impossible to take down or control in clinches. To be honest, that's the majority of Aljamain Sterling's game. He's not a consistent and effective balanced striker. Not defensively, not in the range of techniques he uses, not in his setups. And even even the strength, area strength he has is kicking. He's not a very good boxer. So he's facing a guy who's got heavier hands, who's a better kicker, and even though he's not a great boxer, a better boxer than Sterling. How does he win this fight? I mean, I know he could win it. He could take him down. He could finish. He could control him. He could outwork him. But as far as on the paper, skill for skill... This is a really bad matchup for him, and he could very well lose this fight. And then he's losing to a guy who hasn't looked good in essentially, what, two years, two, three years? You know, loss to Burrell doesn't help anything in your career or your standing. And it seems like the UFC is just, I don't know, trying to get revenge on him, or maybe they just don't believe in him. But they've given him nothing but tough matchups, and this is yet another one. And I think it's the worst possible matchup for Sterling. If Burrell isn't totally shot, if Burrell has something left, and I think he does... Um, he should win this fight by decision. I don't think Sterling can take him down. I don't know that he can control him. And from what I've seen of both the guys on the feet, I don't think Sterling hits hard enough to control him on the feet or or stop him. And I don't think he's skillful enough to outstrike him on the feet. And I don't think he's going to take him down. So basically his avenues of success are, are pretty limited unless, unless, Burrow, unless he's grown in such a manner in the past few months or Burrow really has nothing left. And... Um, Sterling's just able to physically manhandle him and outclass him. If one of those two things doesn't happen, I don't see any way, based off technique, that Sterling wins this fight. If Sterling wins, it tells me more about Burrell than it tells me about Sterling. But if Sterling loses, then it tells me all I need to know about him as well. Yeah, I know. Um, my questions are, you know, what does the UFC do with both men? Do they, if they lose? Um, I, I know... Sterling has the most recent deal. You know, he's two fights in on his new deal. I don't know what um, Hinton Burrell has, what his deal currently looks like. But are, both, in my opinion, right now, both of these men are two men that the UFC doesn't put up a much of a fight to keep when it is time for them to leave. Um, so 
we'll see what it's like when uh, when the loser comes out of this event because I wonder what's next for him. I don't think that either one of these men are in a position to offer the Carolina, uh, excuse me, offer the UFC much at this point in, in time. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out from there. Um, I, you know, I'm not too. I'm not too well versed in saying who's going to win and who's going to lose. Um, I'll, I'll lean towards your speculation for that there. But this is the fight that I'm, I'm watching closely to kind of see what happens to both men for the next phase of their um, of their tenure with the UFC or outside of, uh, of the promotion. And there's one more thing. In the case of Aljamain Sterling, it's something all fighters need to remember. In fact, all people need to remember when you complain about your salary at your job or the lack of perks or whatever you're not getting, you can complain about your salary but if you if and when you make that complaint, eyes are going to be on you. So if they give you the money they want, you have to perform. They're not giving you, they're not working in your favor. They're not trying to help you out. They're trying to get their money's worth from you. So before you say they don't pay me enough, I do so much. Make sure you do what you think you do and you're as good as it as you think you're at. Because when you get that money, they're not pulling any punches. And since Sterling has gotten his money... He has not gotten one easy fight. He has not gotten one marquee fight, and he has not gotten one easy fight since he's gotten his money. And this is yet another instance of them facing him facing a non-marquee name that's not going to help his name build or his brand build, and a guy who's capable of beating him based on skills, based on skills alone. What are your thoughts about um, the Jason Knight Ricardo Lamas fight? Um, I'm, I actually like Jason Knight. I like the fact that he comes from a small camp and he's been consistently improving. I like how aggressive he is with his game. Actually, on the ground, I talked to um, for, former guest on the show, TP Grant, and TP was really breaking it down to me. He he was saying how the he uses that rubber guard and the way that he uses it is he uses it he uses it and he uses it at such a high level that most guys who grapple with him have no real familiarity with that level of grappling acumen using that technique. So it gives him a lot of freedom. And anytime a guy's working in his guard. He's essentially going to be controlling the pace and the action of the fight. So a lot of the things that Lamont likes to do, where he likes to kind of get opportunistic takedowns, work control, and wait for you to give him something against a guy like Knight. Knight's going to push volume. He's going to attack, attack, attack. He's going to look to sweep, to counter, to take you down, to push you up against the fence, to create scrambles. He's going to give, excuse me, he's going to give Castillo, excuse me, he's going to give Lamont every opportunity in the world to get into a good position and to finish. The question is, can Lamas actually finish? And the thing about it is, I think Lamas loses to a certain caliber fighter, a certain caliber athlete, and I really think that Jason Knight is turning into a special kind of fighter. I think he'll be in some dangerous spots because, once again, he's going to come out guns blazing, trying to finish, trying to hit a transition and submit him, or just trying to wipe him out on the feet. But the fact of the matter is that's, that's Lamas' specialty. He's a counter guy. But he's not an aggressive counter guy. He waits until he, he finds the right position, the right spot to finish. And in waiting to find the right spot, in waiting to find the right technique, I think that Jason Knight actually outworks him. I understand what Lamont likes to do, and usually it's it's really good and it's effective against a certain caliber guy. But it seems clear to me that Jason Knight is not the caliber guy that that works against and that he's actually going to pull that fight out. And I think he wins by decision. I think he just outworks him. He could finish him, but I think the pace he sets and the physicality is going to be a bit much for Lamaz. I won't be surprised if he catches him something because he's just that good at, at setting people up and snatching defeat from the jaw, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. But the fact of the matter is against the better guys with the better skill sets and a certain amount of physicality and, and a mean streak in how they fight, he consistently loses. 
Mendez, Holloway, Aldo, guys he just couldn't walk into the right shot or the right position or keep him in the right position long enough to find that submission or that strike. And I think it's going to be a similar thing with Jason Knight. He's just so dynamic on the ground and he's so unorthodox. I don't think that Lamas is going to get the control or be able to maintain the positions that he likes to maintain or needs to maintain to get the holes that he needs to get to finish. Um, is there anything else that kind of stands out to you on this card? What have, what um, what is most important to you heading into Saturday that we haven't already talked about? Um, I can't really say. I, I don't really think there's. I mean, it's a it's a really good card up and down. But those were the main card is really where I put all my value, and just because it's so many title fights and it's so many fights that are essentially going to change the face of each each division. I mean, with the exception of the Barrow. Um, with the Brow Sterling fight, that doesn't really have as much impact on division. But the Avenger, the Avenger Cyborg fight is defining the featherweight division, and it's, and the welterweight division is going to be decided with the Maya and Woodley fight, and the light heavyweight decision, which has essentially been under John Jones's rule, is going to be decided with that fight. So all those fights are such high levels, and they have such high stakes. Those are the ones I, I've really focused on because I'm trying to focus on fights that are yes interesting to fans. But the fights that really are going to change the sport, change the direction of a, a division. And the Jason Knight also, a win over Ricardo Lamas, that changes the, the, the direction of the division there too. You might have another contender and another fight or two. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to uh, disagree with you there at all. I think we have a, a great card that's really going to set the tone for a lot of the rest, the rest of the year and probably most of next year when it comes to um, the UFC and a uh, wide range of their divisions. Um, what are you working on this week? Let's let our readers and listeners know what you have going on for MMA Ratings Net this week. Uh, I did a uh, M- uh, Robbie Lawler versus Donald Cerrone uh, for dummies. It's 10, I, I, I basically find 10 talking points which could cover anything from actual technique to historical historical performances or the history of the way they perform, um, breaking down particular skill sets talk about the hows, what's, and why's behind why the fight was made and what the point of the fight is. Just trying to give you an all-around comprehensive understanding of the fight, not just the breakdown, which I like doing, and fans seem to like too, but I want you to understand, like, why is the fight being made? Why is this fight being extended instead of just being canceled? What are you going to learn from this fight? How is this fight going to impact the division? What does this fight mean moving forward for other people in the division? I want to kind of attack every single aspect of the fight in the matchmaking process in in the uh, the uh, MMA for dummies that I do when I talk about matchups. I don't just like to hit on the actual technical matchup, but everything else that creates the fight and um, that you should get from the fight. Kind of give guys things to look for when they see the fight, before the fight, during the fight, and after the fight. Mm-hmm. Good there. So I'm, I actually worked on a piece about Damian Maya, and I did another one about Chris Cyborg as well. They'll probably be up on the site. Uh, Friday and Saturday, so keep an eye out for that. Um, I've been doing other work across the internet on Carolina, heading into the training camp, you know, gra- a competitive grappling. I just did an interview piece with um, a photographer of mini grappling events on um, Bloody Elbow for this week. Um, got some more stuff coming out as usual, so be sure to um, catch me wherever you can. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at MMA Ratings Net, where we post just some pictures and questions about upcoming fights. You can catch us on Twitter in the same handle, MMA Ratings Net. Check out MMARatings.net to go and rank the fights. Let us know how excited you are about the upcoming fights. Let us know what you thought about them as soon as they finish. And as always, be sure to like and share our podcast every Thursday. You can find us here 
on YouTube. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher as well. So um, just be sure, you know, we appreciate all your support and um, you continuously liking and sharing our content. Be sure to send hey, Raphael, questions. Yeah. I, I have well. one more question you for you. Go ahead, man. How happy are you going to be if the champion, one of the main champions of the UFC is going to be a almost complete grappler who's a champion of the UFC? It's crazy, man. It's like, like almost a pure grappler, like almost completely a pure grappler is the best fighter in the world. How happy is that going to have you? I mean, it's going to be nuts because it'll, it'll be it'll be about time. And I hope that the UFC gives him his credit. You know, like he is he's what this champion or he's he's what everyone like. He's a champion that everyone wants to see, you know, like um, there's no other way of, of, of putting it. He embodies everything that is used to define the, the term champion. So I'm happy with what I see. And well, I, Will I'm, he become the modern Hoist Gracie, like if he wins? Potentially, he could. And if he keeps winning, yes. Because, I mean, with the win streak he's on and then becoming a champion, I mean, that would essentially be almost duplicating what Hickson did when he came into MMA and what Hoist essentially did, you know, just showing the superiority of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu way of fighting. And he'd be a guy who almost exclusively wins using only Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He hardly even really punches, to be honest. I mean, he doesn't. He hardly throws any punches. He goes in there, he gets the takedown, and he finishes you from some way, shape, or form. Yeah. I mean, that that, that would be... That'd be I'd be very interested to see how the fans receive that. I mean, it'd be interesting. I, I'd respect it either way, but it'd be very interesting to see how that's received, how most fans like the MMA kickboxing more than they like the extended grappling exchange. It'd be very interesting to see how that's received and what the UFC how the UFC treats them moving forward. You know, they're not very kind to Brazilian fighters, to be quite honest, and they're not very kind to uh, fighters who fight like Maya, in my experience. But I'd be interested to I see. Can I can definitely agree with you. Um, so with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. Um, thank you again, everybody, for listening to our content, and be sure to catch us back here next Thursday as we cover uh, mixed martial arts in the world of combat sports. And guess what? This was a whole show that we went by without talking about Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. How about that? Well, that's impressive. That's like that should be. We should get an award just for that because no other show is doing that. <laughs> we should definitely get an award just for that. So with that in mind, we'll be we're out of here, and we see you guys next week. All right, you guys take it easy.